Hey everybody, welcome to Creative Agency, a show about taking control over your career, taking the plunge into the unknown, and using that energy to create something insanely great. Ever thought about being your own boss? About rewriting the rule book? About taking that dream job and making it real? This is the show for you. Just how do business owners and entrepreneurs make it work? We'll find out what drives them, what inspired them to do their own thing, and how they've made it work. We're going to learn from the best, people who've taken the leap, struck out alone, and have the scars to show. I'm Jason McDermott, and you're listening to Creative Agency. Now, before we get stuck into the show, I'd first like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring Creative Agency this week. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online folio. If you're interested in getting set up on the web, Squarespace is the best place to start. If you go to squarespace.com, you'll find beautiful templates that you can use to get your site up and running in just a few clicks. Their templates are designed to work on all kinds of devices, desktop and mobile, which is super important since more and more people will be coming to your site via mobile devices in the years to come. Once you've picked your template, it's also super easy to use. You can just drag and drop your content around on your site to your heart's content. If you're looking to set up an online store, Squarespace also has you covered as e-commerce is literally built right into the platform. It couldn't be any easier to get a slick, professional looking site up and running in minutes. At just $8 a month US, you can get a beautiful mobile ready website up and running, including your own domain and hosting if you buy the one year package. You can start a free trial today with no credit card required simply by going to squarespace.com. You can also save an extra 10% if you use the offer code CREATIVE10. That's CREATIVE10. Thanks again, Squarespace, for sponsoring Tickler and Creative Agency. Today on the show, I've got Phil Maul, who is the co-founder and CEO of Polonizer. Around six years ago, Phil co-founded Polonizer with Mick Lubinskis. Uh, another figure who I'm keen to get on the show. Um, and since then, Polonizer has really gone from strength to strength. They're an organization that build businesses, not in an incubation or acceleration sense, rather as a co-founder. So the process of doing that, we talk about in this interview, the way that they've learned from, um, from their experiences running small businesses and how they're changing their approach, which is naturally evolving. We also talk about how the marketplace here in Australia can be quite noisy and crowded and how Phil is finding new avenues and opportunities for growth in new markets such as Southeast Asia. We talk about how important it is to get to the no fast. So in the classic lean development, Steve Blank, get out of the business customer development sense, how important it is to get to that no from a customer as quickly as you can in order to understand whether or not you're really wasting your time or if you're actually onto the right thing, building a product that someone would actually want and pay money for. Um, so it's a great interview. It's a long one, even by creative agency standards. Uh, <laughs> I think there's quite a lot in here for the budding entrepreneur. And Phil is certainly someone who I think plays a little bit of that mentor role in the community here, at least in Sydney. Um, and I think he's the he's the perfect candidate for someone to do that because he's got a lifetime's worth of experience. He's also looking to make a positive contribution to the way we think about entrepreneurship. So I hope you enjoy. I certainly intend on inviting Phil back onto the show in the years to come. Now, without any further ado... Here's Phil Moore on Creative Agency. 
Welcome, Phil. Hello, good to be here. It's good to have you. So, I think you're a little bit of an enigma in that I can see I can see that uh, you burst on the scene with a little bit of a flourish around about the 2000 2001 mark. Um, you know, you jump on board with with Sherman Networks um, with the ill-fated Kazar project, which I recall fondly from my high school days. But before that, there's a, there's a big window where you were involved in the theatre world that's but I right. can't seem to find any information about online. Could yeah, you, could you describe that? So, well, my theatre background was my very important training to do what I do today. So I've always loved technology and my family's very tech-based, but I've, I, I resisted it in the early days um, because it's not how my mind worked. I'm a creative person principally that loves tech. I'm, I think I'm that way around. Um, and at the time, technology was much more hardcore kind of code, you know, programming engineering. It's an engineering discipline, not a creative discipline. But what's happened over the last uh, 10 years is it's become more creative. And that's kind of how I've ended up here today. But the journey through the theatre, um, you know, taught me a whole bunch of things. I mean, I had to, I, so I ran a, a theatre company called Chaos Theatre, uh, which began in the UK and then extended into Australia, which is how I ended up here. Um, and it and it ran successfully and commercially for 10 years against all the odds because there's one thing that's certain about theatre is it's not commercially viable from the outset. It costs a lot more to make it than you can ever you know, make from audiences coming along. But somehow I managed to not only keep that going for 10 years but also have a sustained group of people that worked together around a vision. And that's one of the big things that startups really need. It's this idea of um, establishing a big idea and putting it in front of a group of people and say, let's make that real, let's go for that. Um, and theatre is just the hardest way to do it because no one gets paid money. People are very critical of you when you finally stage it. The odds are all against you, um, just as they are when you're a startup. Um, and so that, that helped me a lot. And, you know, running the business uh, was very entrepreneurial activity, you know, trying to find a way of surviving and coping. Um, so it taught me a lot of, um, about what's needed to be a startup. And then there's all the just the, the, the small skills like or the important skills like communication, you know, feeling comfortable standing up in front of people and talking about an idea. Those kinds of things that really helped me with, um, with the theatre. Did but you did you have a performing background? Was that how I you did? Were I've actually I've performed in Hamlet and I've directed it and done a whole bunch of other things. I also had a lot of technology in the shows, so it was always about making a new experience that was a rich blend of people and technology together. Lots of projections and things like that. Um, but um, you know, over the time. Uh, I needed to find a way of making money, of course, that wasn't just through the theatre. So my kind of my um, background work whilst all that happened was building websites for people. So over that 10-year theatre career, it was also the beginning of the, the internet as, as, a, as a consumer offering. Um, as it happened, it was the way the English theatre company and the Australian theatre company could stay in touch because... Let's send our minds back then. It was very expensive to 
make a phone call to England back then and flights were very expensive and there was no no Skype or (laughs) so that was our that was our solution so we became very out of a necessity very early adopters of the internet and then I found that I could go along on the journey of becoming a web developer because in the first days it was very simple it was I could do it as a designer and style text and things like that and I often say that I was kind of um you know, conned into being a chief technology officer by the industry who just kind of just added extra little elements which I was tempted to try and before I knew it I was making whole new applications and ended up being the chief technology officer of Kazar at the end of that journey. So, sort of an accidental yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'd like to I'd like to return back to this idea of the improvements in technology making new things possible. Um, but before then, um, I think there's something interesting about that progression where you're in this uh in this mode where a new medium is is emerging and it's very immature you might say so all these people have opportunities to you know tinker with it and change their careers uh which i think is a really interesting thing and you do see that some of the the people that i've worked with in the past that i respect um so greatly got their start in the the baby days of the web when everything looked really really embarrassing now to look back on it it, yeah, it really was, and yeah, re- real frontier stuff. And I think for the first ten years or so, I was able to keep up by just paying attention, trying to build things, almost as a hobbyist. You know, some, sometimes I would be actually doing consulting work and getting paid for it. Sometimes I was just learning and sort of devouring all the new information that came up. But it, it definitely got to a point in. 1999 I think it was when I tipped into before becoming a full-time web person um, where it was just going so fast and and I hit those moments throughout my career from time to time there are moments where something starts happening at such a speed internally I have to make a decision to either get on the train or let it go and um, and I think that... What are some of the moments where you've, you've struggled with that? Well, I think, you know, obviously getting professionally on board with, with web development and that what, what the internet was becoming as a commercial landscape was, was a moment. And, and I definitely saw the train at the station, confidently got on it, and off, off we went. I feel like I missed the mobile moment. That, so we're definitely, I feel like I'm the guy on that, you know, those, those sort of train wagons where you're sort of pumping, two guys are sort of pumping the, some quick the sand wagon right along. That's right. I'm, I'm like that guy chasing the train um, because just Australia was very dependent on the browser technology and we were, we were making, we were successfully working and making products for people on browsers. Um and I suppose for a while I was very distracted with the whole peer-to-peer network and Kazar universe as well, which was very interesting. Distracted is one yeah. way. Yeah, that's it. right. And then the, I think that the current one that I'm thinking a lot about is is the whole Bitcoin change um, because it feels like that's a profound shift that is possibly occurring as we speak where um, a internet powered form of commerce is going to overlay on the communication um, layer and 
lots of things are going to change. And we, we're, we're working, for example, in Myanmar right now. And in Myanmar, less than 10% of the population have a bank account, less than 5% have a mobile phone, and less than 1% are on the internet. And yet this year, everybody is going to have access to cheap, fast internet via Huawei mobile phones that two uh, telcos are bringing into that market. So it's kind of an on switch. You've got a market there that's going to go from no one having internet to everyone having smartphone powered wireless internet all in the same moment over a two year period, say. Mm-hmm. When I, I think that of- in the last couple of years, there's been this leapfrogging of, of landline connections, especially in places like Africa. That's, or that's right. One that, it's exactly what's happening now in, in Myanmar. And, and, and when I think about Bitcoin in that context, um, it's a much more sensible approach, uh, a much more pragmatic and simple way for a, company, a country to build uh, uh, a, an economic fabric, a natural way of people transacting in and out of the country and doing things. More work needs to be done to make the platform stronger and robust. But it feels enormous. It feels like an enormous opportunity. Mark Andreessen's calling it the same as the beginning of the internet as a as a change which is happening. And um, and so and in response to that, returning to your question, um, I've spent quite a long time recently just reading everything I can on Bitcoin and looking for opportunities to make new companies around that because I feel like it'll be two years from now when we'll all look back and go, gosh, everything's Bitcoin now. And, you know, I wish I was the guy that made that company two years ago. So would you say that there's a tension between being the guy, the first guy, and being the first successful guy? Yes. So definitely they don't... Um, that, that I think it's fairly well known that it's usually not the first guy who is the uh, successful guy. He builds the road and then the successful that, guy. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think the first guys are out there. They're kind of, they're all, they're all busily, you know, busily building the platform, creating exchanges. Um, and they really are at the frontier doing brilliant things, not unlike our work at Kazar and they're, they're facing the, the legal challenges along the way because it's in a you know these things are always difficult because they're not illegal they're just no one's made a law up yet because something's new and then you find yourself working on something which somebody has now defined to be something that can be challenged legally and then then you're in trouble of course that's what's what happened with us at Kazar and the other PHP companies and will happen to other big bitcoin operators as the as the world changes mm. so there's there's definitely a, a level of risk uh, acceptance that you take when uh, looking at these things you mentioned earlier the the um, entrepreneurial spirit that you had that um, uh, when you're working with chaos and I, I saw somewhere that you defined it as being um, the pursuit of opportunity beyond resources controlled yeah and I think that's a really that's a really good um, summary of, of what that entails like Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on that. Uh, yeah, on so that's that's actually a definition which came out of Harvard University, and it's the best one I've found to describe what it is that we entrepreneurs do. And um, and the two parts of it 
are very important. So it's the pursuit of opportunity. So that's part one. Um, even the word pursuit, I mean, you're chasing something which isn't with you. It's in front of you. You have to go and get it and you really have to chase it down. Um, and it's, and being an opportunity, it doesn't exist yet. So you've got to make it manifest and it's against the laws of physics for that to be possible. I mean, we all know when we try and start a company, um, the, the, the world is acting against it, not 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 on purpose. Just it just is distracted. It can't really be bothered. You're not important, and you know. So you have to punch through that a million times. Especially now when there's just so much content available. That's so right. The attention uh, window that you have with any one individual is much smaller. And I, I really notice the difference between working here in Australia and working in Southeast Asia, for example. So in Australia. One of the things that I'm understanding more and more as time goes on is it's not only a fairly small market by global standards, um, it's also now a very mature and noisy market. So actually as an entrepreneur to launch something new, to pursue an opportunity, you're going into, you're, you're walking onto a very crowded stage and to stand out is, is very challenging. Could you imagine if there were a hundred other theatre companies performing on the same at, stage. At the same as time. You at the that's same right, time. that's right. Whereas still at this moment in time, um, in the markets like the Philippines, for example, um, there are spaces which you can step into, which are still empty spaces or, or not crowded spaces. So we've just started a real estate business, for example, in uh, in Manila, which is not dissimilar to realestate.com.au with a few things around it. And it's extraordinary that there is no realestate.com.au in the Philippines where there's 90 plus million people and a massively booming real estate market. But I really re- I realized the difference between starting a company here and starting in the Philippines where you just you can just literally say we've got a real estate business and everyone goes, fantastic, I can do real estate on the internet. Let's go and, let's go and do that. Um The other part of that quote, which is the beyond resources controlled, is vital um, as part of the definition because um, I think if someone's over-resourced, they lose a whole bunch of critical pieces of entrepreneurship. So I think you tend to be less creative. Uh, You tend to be um, less desperate. and these things really matter. And it's why frequently new ventures inside large enterprises fail. Because someone might say, hey, there's an opportunity in the real estate space, for example, inside a large media company. They'd say, let's, let's go after that space. And so the first thing that happens is they really, really think about it and take the time to write a really good uh, business case for this, which might be a nine-month process which shows how much it's going to cost to do this properly, which might be many millions of dollars. And then a team's finally put around it. And that team's cumbersome. They can't make a decision because there's too many people and no one's really vested in it. And Maybe they uh, learned something that's different to what was in the original well, report. Well, that's right. And, um, uh, and, you, and, you know, there's the other side of the good things. You may have a usability specialist in the teams. You've got all the resources that you need. But that means that guy 
delays things for three months whilst he puts it through a series of tests with customers and labs and things and you know and the the pursuit of opportunity starts to be lost um the 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 desperation and the fear that comes from not having enough resources is also important it, it's really formed how we structure our programs here at Pollenizer, where we used to be uh, almost a startup agency where we employed the people here inside Pollenizer, and we had engineers, designers, uh, business people. And when we started a new opportunity, we would deploy our team into that business and do it that way. It's sort of how Blue Chili operates. That's now. right. And if the if the business didn't work, we would you know put that team into another business, and we learned that those teams were operating very differently even to us as Polonizer, for example. So as the founder of Polonizer, with my money and my reputation at stake, I have moments of dread and fear at 11 o'clock at night where I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell are we going to do? And that background thought turns to an action the next day where everything changes and we become what we're going to become next. And that's how we survive. And, you know, Polonizer's six years old this month. You know, and so in spite of a very um, uh, volatile world that we live in, where it changes every year and, you know, it's hard to resource things, uh, we've survived. And it's because of the, um, the, the lack of resources and our need to be creative in order to survive, which creates a... A sort of creative desperation in the mind of the founders, which you know drives first of all survival and then success. And uh, so I think those two things together—the pursuit of opportunity beyond resources control—is uh, is a terrific definition of entrepreneurship. I agree. I, I also think it's really fascinating how resourceful you can be when you don't have resources. That's right. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned that um, you had a, a certain model of operation where you had a team that would be deployed uh, as need be on each of the businesses. That's not how you operate at the moment? Like, how have you shifted? Yeah, so we, we wanted teams to be fundamentally entrepreneurial. Um, so, you know, uh, chasing down opportunities beyond resources control. And uh, so how we changed our model is we, we effectively made everyone redundant who were in those teams in a, in a staged way and very transparently with those people and offered them jobs inside the startups themselves. So we invested our capital into the startup. We gave most of the equity to the teams inside the startup. And that was a big difference. We gave away a lot more equity than we ever did. Um, and I think I should just pause and just talk about that for a second. That's a key thing about our model is we we incubate businesses from the first thought of an opportunity. So um, unlike an accelerator, which might take a company that's already a year, a year and a half old with a pre-existing team who have already risked so much of their own capital and reputation and so on, um, and then dropping people into a three to six month program, we are we we say hey why don't we make a business around uh, disrupting legal services and then we go about finding 
co-founders, investors, and we pull everything really? together. Yeah. See, so people don't come to you pitching ideas. No. You generate the ideas and then find so the right team for it. We certainly did that in the past, and uh, we don't do that now. We like to. Sometimes we liken ourselves to an A and R team in a record company, where we try and run programs and and events and participate in the community, so that we are scouting always for talent and for ideas. You know, this Bitcoin work I'm doing at the moment is a lot about just understanding the fabric of opportunity there and what we might we might do. Uh, working a lot with big companies and understanding what kind of startups they would like to offer services to them. And build companies and opportunities around that. So we curate an opportunity and bring people in and then heavily um, incentivize them to build their own business around that. And that's always the fine balance because in one sense we are running quite a managed process where we're, we're, we're curating the people and the opportunity and the initial path. But then our job is very, very quickly to mobilize the founders to run their own business, take it down the path that they want to take it in. And certainly we are We've done this enough times to know that the idea will be different the day after and the day after that and the day after that. So we're comfortable with the idea changing. So we're very focused on having great founders. Um, and founders who who are committed to maximizing their own value. And that's the thing. It doesn't, um, you know, when in adversity or um, um, challenging times for the business, the, the founders don't take the easy decision and think, oh, well, it's, we'll go on, that one didn't work, we'll go on to another one. I mean, these are businesses which are, they are in the public saying, this is me, this is my company. They're risking so much, they're not getting paid very much money. Um, and uh, and it has to win. And that's what makes them align with us and the shareholders because we're all pursuing this opportunity. And uh, and it has to win. And And I think that's helped us to change our philosophy around how these ventures are, are made. If you'd, if you'd interviewed me two years ago, I would have said something quite similar to what you'll hear from a lot of early stage venture businesses, which is 95% of startups fail. So we have to run a statistical game and, and make lots of startups. And then the 5% that win will compensate for the 95% that fail. And we don't believe that anymore. We, we accept that failure is, is a big possibility for our companies that we start, but we want to set up the environment with a determination that they will not fail. And that means doing fewer companies, curating the team and the opportunity and the customers and the partnerships so that that company has an unfair advantage and making sure we've got the bandwidth to really support the teams to tangibly and forever as co-founders make sure that business is resourced and getting the traction it needs to go on to the next level um, and not get distracted from that from that goal. So a part of a part of winning inevitably involves lots and lots of small failures. Yeah. So, so you geared towards getting to that failure quickly minimizing it so that it's not it's not uh, existentially destructive to the organization and it's instructive and helps the organization learn that that's right i mean we we talk about flirting a lot which is our new word for <laughs> i haven't uh, heard that one. it's uh, 
we tried to come up with a less um, horrible sounding word for failure where you're learning through failure. And, uh, you know, it's like a, a toddler learning to walk. You have to just try and walk and you fall over a bunch of times, but then you get your balance and you get your strength and you know how to walk. And um, uh, the only way to know what your business is and whether it's valuable and what people want it for is to is to force yourself into lots of failures. Uh, I was reading a really good blog post on um, Sequoia Capital's website yesterday around how they encourage their founders to get to the no as fast as possible when they're talking to customers. And that's a variation on that same meme. Um, it's just having an explicit conversation, either an actual discussion or a conversation through putting your product in front of someone and seeing what they do with it and being really, really clear about what it does, uh, knowing fully that that's so clear, a whole bunch of people are going to hate it and tell you, you know, tell you so either with their words or their actions. And it's a failure. And if you can have... You can have 10 of those a day, which don't matter because only a few people are having it. And no one cares about your business yet. And every time you learn these things, you're making it stronger and better for the next round of people that come in. And, uh, and we have to do that. We have to allow ourselves to fail. I was doing some mentoring at Founder Institute, and uh, which is a terrific program. It's like night school for entrepreneurs. And... Frequently, in in uh, the pitching at Founder Institute, we hear founders hedging their pitch. So, and it, there's almost this instinctive um, uh, desire to not quite tell people exactly what it is, because then they might hate it. So, what I'll do is I'll make it sound a little bit more amorphous and amazing, like a platform that does all these amazing three-letter acronym things. Um, but you don't know what it is. So, and I remember once at um, uh, at a Perth Founder Institute saying to one of the founders, "I've got no, I can't even give you a score because I've got no idea what you just described to me. Can you try it again and just be very, very explicit, unflowery, just say it as it is, what it is?" Um, and he did the pitch, and I said, "Fantastic! I really understand your business now, and I hate it. I would never use it, and I don't think it's going to make a dollar." That's just my opinion. But the wonderful thing is well done for pitching it so clearly because you put yourself in the moment of actually describing what you actually intend to just waste weeks and weeks and weeks building. And you've got a clear bit of feedback from your first person that for them at least that isn't going to work. So now tell that story to another 10 people and keep working in that way and you'll learn whether you're going to build something that they want. It's, it's interesting to get someone who's not wearing rose-colored glasses to look at your baby and, and tell you that it's ugly. That's right. Um, yeah. And I, I really like that second half of that uh, anecdote, which is where you say this is what you're prepared to what spend months yeah. working on, yeah. pouring your effort into. Are you really going to do that? Yeah. Is that really worth your time? Yeah. Um, so picking the right opportunities to go with is so critical. Um, I, I was flicking through the book that you wrote uh, two years ago now. Um, and one of the aspects that really caught my mind is um, this idea of having focus and how important focus is. 
and uh, having not read the book in, in full, but um, caught that idea. I was wondering if you had any thoughts around the various types of focus that you need to have when going through this process. Because at the, at the very beginning, your focus is what are, what's the constellation of possibilities? And then you would pick one. And then within that one, there's what's the spectrum of ways to actually make that opportunity manifest. And so the, the focus kind of expands and, mm. and contracts at various points in time. That, that's a, a very important observation about focus that people struggle with, I think. So the, the key idea with focus is that because you've got limited resources, and because no one cares, because you're brand new and they're busy and they're distracted with other things, you have to pick, you have to give yourself an unfair advantage by creating almost laboratory conditions where there's no impurities. You pick a customer, even if it's one guy, who is, if anyone in the world wants this business that I'm going to make, it's that guy. And you try and give him that solution. And if he doesn't want it, you know, you've got a problem, you need to come, you've had a little flirt and you need to go and figure out what to do next. So focus is very helpful to give you that clarity and understand what to make and then also to to penetrate the the noise that's out there. You know, I'm not exactly like PayPal, I'm a different kind of payment mechanism. I'm, pay, I'm paying, you know, in the case of our pig payment business, you know, we're not PayPal, we're how... Payments happen in schools and it's customized for the school context. So even though there's this temptation to build this enormous payment mechanism, which one day will be bigger than PayPal, we've got no chance whatsoever of building that business with that message and that focus from the first day because we will fail in that. But we can utterly own the school's payments business in Australia and then the world and then layer on all the other tiers after that. So focus can really help us build momentum. But your point about the zooming in and out is critical because also at the heart of entrepreneurship, when you're pursuing opportunities, you know, part of that is to, to try an opportunity in the quickest, simplest, cheapest way that you can so that you get this learning moment. And you might be trying a diversity of different things and so at the heart of entrepreneurship is an act of unfocusedness. You know, you, you are, you're going to try these 10 things and you might be just running these little experiments. And then the challenge though is to know when to abandon eight out of the 10, zoom in on the two and then make those the, make those the way you're going to put all your resources. And, um, you know, Mick, who co-founded Polonizer with me six years ago, he's got a really simple tool. For doing this which is extremely helpful uh, which he first did for mozilla the the browser business which is you know struggles with focus i mean and that's hard to do right if you're a browser you're kind of everybody's everything everything happens in there so what are the most important things to do and it all began just drawing on a whiteboard three columns in the first column you have focus in the second column you have do and in the third column you have don't and the things that go in the focus column are the things that you learn you're going to invest most of your resources into. So most of your money, most of your time, these are the important things which are critical for the core of the business to get the traction that it needs. Things in the do column, that can be a bigger list. 
but they're things which you will allow as long as you don't have to put much effort into. So even though we, so for following the pig example again, it might be the focus is to drive a payments business into the school marketplace. If somebody in an amateur sports team adjacent to the school wants to use pig in that context as well, go ahead, as long as we don't have to do any work on it. And we'll just sort of pay background, you know, notice to what's actually happening and see if we learn from that. And then the don't column is the longest list of all. And that's the list of everything which you will not do under any circumstances, even if people pay you. So it's, it's imagining that white label deal where someone will give you $250,000 to do a parallel version of your website. And you think that's great. That's going to give me some money and, and so on. But it effectively moves you off your core hypothesis about how this business is going to be valuable. So you just must not do it. And just declaring it on that list is a very powerful and painful thing to do. I think that's a good psychological tool for uh, predicting the opportunities that are going to distract you later so that you can then you, you have a list where you say, look, we already said we weren't going to do this. So even though that $200,000 looks really great and gosh, money's tight at the moment, we're bootstrapped, it's all very difficult. We, we decided long ago that we don't have, uh, we don't follow these opportunities. And I think that's uh, something that my co-founder and I, I think, um, I wouldn't say we've got it down pat, but at the very outset, we started talking about what are the values of our organization. And if you don't do that exercise and you never can articulate or you articulate too late, uh, what the values are. It's easy to get distracted with things that are either non-core, uh, not with your principles, or just distract you in in dis, uh, in destructive ways. Yeah, and I think values are important, and they're they're especially important in startups, and almost comes full circle back to the theatre and getting people to gather for a sustained period of time around an idea. And you know, in Polynizer, what we're really excited by as a, as a team is is what we call building a guild of entrepreneurs that that spreads across Asia Pacific and that is what drives the team more than you know, making money you know the, the the products themselves the products become the the servant of our goal to uh, you know our, our, our mission to to throw ropes across all the different entrepreneurial communities. And like a guild of artisans, these people have a shared practice, a shared discipline of entrepreneurship. And you know, moving entrepreneurship beyond a uh, seat of your pants, oh, my God, I hope we get there. Let's, uh, let's see how we go. And sort of augment that. You know, no, don't kill that, of course. That's a really important part of it. But augment it with a, with a craft and a discipline, which actually means more of us succeed and the industry as a whole, you know, returns bigger, better, stronger companies that feed on the next generation. That's, um, it's, it's really great to hear you describe it in that way. One of the questions I had um, coming into this interview was, there's a, a bit of a tendency, and I see, I see this happening globally, and I think perhaps Tickler, my podcast site, is um, guilty of this as well, which is, where you claim or you offer advice or expertise where you have none uh, and you, you put that forward because entrepreneurship is so you know loosey-goosey it's a little bit fluid mm. you can be a loser yesterday and a winner tomorrow 
and therefore you're an expert in some field. Um, and I wanted to get your input on that. And I think you touched on that briefly, but I'll, I'll give you some more space for it. But there's, there's this, um, I find it somewhat troubling that you can have so much claimed expertise in an area and share that when the expertise is somewhat lacking. I think there's a lot of that in, in the startup wave that's happening right now. And um, there's a lot of so-called entrepreneurs that are attending uh, various events and um, sitting in various uh, co-working spaces. And the, all these events as well fuel the need for a, 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 an army of mentors that sort of help people come up. And there's not really enough of those, as you say, who have truly built businesses and, uh, and can give you know, from the heart and soul advice to people. Um, and I, I'm very wary of it as well, even when we give advice. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's uh, the, the strongest way of saying it is just to tell a story about something that happened. You know, this, this is when I've tried to do something like this, here's, here's something that happened to me. And then, you, you know, you decide what you want to do with it and, um, and take control. But I think there's a, there's a, there, there is a world of, of consultants and so on that are around entrepreneurship that don't, that don't really have the practice behind them to back it. And we're very conscious of that actually in Polonizer, especially now because we are moving into another realm of, of our own development where we are, we are actually advising large companies about how they can become more like a startup and they can innovate in the same way that startups can. Uh, and the risk there is projecting ourselves two years into the future where we've forgotten what it's like to be in a startup and we're now putting our you know, PowerPoint decks up on the wall with all the boxes and flowcharts and showing you the process of entrepreneurship. And we're no longer practicing entrepreneurs. So, so what we're putting a lot of effort into at the moment is to make sure our business the two sides of the business feed each other so that we are always founding companies and we're always risking our own money and our own reputation in that process. And we're always feeling the fear and we're always bootstrapping and we're always um, um, not having enough resources to build the things that we want to build. And on the other side, we're, we're sharing everything that we learn in that process with other people doing that both with the guild of entrepreneurs, but also with the, the people inside big companies that need to find a way of innovating. And we, we use the phrase a lot authentically entrepreneurial in our work. If we can't look ourselves in the mirror in the morning and say, what I'm doing today is authentically entrepreneurial, then we shouldn't be doing what we're doing regardless of whether that's the consulting work or the, or the, building our own businesses. Mm. Would you say you have an ideal balance between those two? Like what would what would we what would be the ideal balance between the consulting and the and the, the bootstrap work? Well, being an entrepreneur, what happens is they all start to mutually benefit each other. So if I was to grossly oversimplify it, I'd say we're doing about half and half. We're doing about fifty percent resources on one and fifty percent on the other. Um, it's very, very beneficial because uh, the act of teaching something that you've learned from experience 
forces you to articulate um, what you've learned in a way that others can benefit from it and so that you can understand it better. We were talking about it before the interview around blogging, for example. Writing it down sort of helps you say, gosh, yes, that's what I learned. Let me try and say that to all the companies and see if that helps them. And then, you know, building on the learning in that way. And so also, think, there's also feedback involved in that. You know, you can write a blog post and people can tell you that you're a fool. That's right. That's so right. That's a really good mechanism. And, that, and that goes back to the, to the, what we were saying around the pitching earlier and the learning as much as you can. It's like, say it out there to the public and give people a chance to say, that is absolutely not my experience and, and learn from that. So I think, you know, I think that's, uh, that's really important. But the reason it's not quite so simply 50-50 is what happens is, you know, we work on startups. You know, we form these companies around these spaces. Um, we learn a lot about where they're failing. We take those insights and we teach them to other people. So, for example, we're doing a project with Singtel now and they're building a, a company here with us. Um, and we're, we're feeding what we learn into that, into that process. And then, um, but what happens is you find opportunities come up to actually create companies with the people that you're teaching. Uh, and be that just an entrepreneur or be that a large corporate, you know, in any of those situations, you go, gosh, that guy with that opportunity with that company is really, really interesting. So then you invest and start a new company and the whole thing comes full circle. Um, so it's really just the act of, being entrepreneurs in different contexts and grabbing opportunities when they come up and exploiting them. I think there's in big business there's an opportunity for um, a, a permanent role, which is like opportunity seeker. Yeah, someone whose role it is to purely know what everybody does yeah. in the organisation and actively look for opportunities for them to collaborate or you know work together. Yeah, that's right. We call, we we talk about it in terms of capturing value out of something so so we actually have this um, enterprise incubation program which has a certain group of people who are doing what you're describing that go throughout that the sort of spinal column throughout the whole thing and one of the things that group must do is at certain points where for example you might be exiting a company out of an incubator you might have got to a point where we've measured its its success this business doesn't appear to have a future we need to exit it but not just exit it and walk on it's exit it and capture what we learned so that the next one we form is, is actually a little bit stronger or perhaps it's a it's a rubbish business but there's a whole bunch of insights which are really good for the rest of this business so we should share that with this team and this team and this team or maybe we can just reuse the website or something. But capturing the value, there's always value. Yeah. There just might not be a so great you don't, business. You don't discard things that could be valuable to others within, That's right. within either the guild or new, um, new large-scale um, ventures. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask um, what, uh, what other things come out of that process. So you, you learn a lot in your, um, your own bootstrapped uh, entrepreneurial ventures. And then you can take that and teach that to the to the corporates. What do you extract out of that? And it sounds like there's at least two things that you extract. The first is the process of teaching, which helps you learn yourself what it is that you ought to know or that you do know but you haven't articulated. The second is that it gives you um, this really high-level view and the ability and exposure to spot opportunities to then become new ventures. Is there anything else that I'm missing that uh, from that corporate side of things that you... 
uh, that you gain a lot out of that can come back into the, the guild? Well, it's, it's um, we talk about it as giving the entrepreneurs in the guild uh, an unfair advantage. So to take as an example our recent work with Coca-Cola, the focus of that work was around problems that could be solved in supply chain, which I thought I understood before we started this process. But what I realized when we were in the thick of it is I could never build a company for Coca-Cola before today because I just didn't understand the specific things that they needed solving. And of course, as is intuitive, they are very, very good at supply chain. They're an amazing company and it's super impressive to see how they do innovate in all these things, you know, how the warehousing works, how the trucks deliver things, how they know where to go, how they collect the money and that kind of stuff. And, and they're but, not but, innovation averse, are they? Because there are incentives. That's right. I mean, it, there is millions of dollars to be saved or made to, to, to improve these things. So all the entrepreneurs that participated in that program and the investors that participated in that program as mentors and as people that subsequently invested in businesses which came out the other side have an unfair advantage right there in that they're already, they've already met everyone in Coca-Cola. They've got a strong relationship. They've worked with them. They've heard the ideas. They've started building something and there's already something underway. And it's, um, it's, it's creating the conditions for success kind of before they're normally there. You know, normally an entrepreneur has to somehow understand everything Coca-Cola wants, build something that Coca-Cola wants, show it to them and then try and convince them coldly that, you know, this is something they should buy and this is um, this is something we try and we try and avoid. I think the other thing that we've learned comes out of these events, which we've always begun uh, our hackathons for us are the beginning of the venture creation process. They're the, the industrial creation of many, many business models and the early validation of those to sort of start to pick a place to go. Um, but what we've learned as well is when we're working with big companies, we've learned, I think, how wonderful um, the innovation environment is inside a startup. And seeing the cultural impact that has on the people from a large corporate that come and that comes and takes part in a hackathon is terrific because the world of a startup is knows how to manage risk. It enjoys putting something out there and seeing what happens, and innovation and feedback happens very very quickly. And giving that as a, as a skill set to people inside big companies is something that they realize they can use actually in their daily practice. Um, but also they feel joy doing it. They enjoy doing it. It's very team-based. Uh, it's very positive. It's all about learning. Uh, if you fail, it's okay. We understand what to do with that. Um, so it introduces a whole new set of tools and a, and a whole new approach as a team to to, to innovation that, that's a benefit which we've learned is is that we should talk about more because the companies love it is there is there a point in um, in the guild world not the large corporate world where the startup goes from being like uh, hacked together bootstrap maybe two or three people involved 
and starts to mature and grow into a much larger entity. Uh, I'm thinking uh, possibly of Posse uh, in particular. Uh, how do you manage that transition? Is that something that you're still actively involved in with Pollinizer, or like how does that how does that um, transition happen? So we tend to be involved for well, the principle is we're involved for for life whatever that means. So we're a co-founder. Okay. We're involved from the from the beginning all the way through. And and then what tends to happen is as the business is quite mature, we'll step back a little bit as it just needs permanent dedicated people. Frequently we're still on the board. So we're still our, we're still directors and major shareholders of companies we founded uh, five years ago. And um, others we we just stay in touch with. So Posse were based here just you know until about six months ago. Um, I think to your question on the the transition sequence is really important, and it's really easy to get wrong. So uh, so for example, we've had a number of experiences in our life where we've felt that the business is getting traction. Um, we can't continue that traction without investing more in the in the resourcing around it so now we need another engineer for example or now we need to have a sales guy in singapore or whatever it's going to be and you start to scale up the business and then with a parallel track of bringing on investors uh, bringing on the next group of people that are going to help support and resource the business as it goes to the next level and I found that so delicate and a science in its own right to make sure you're always balancing. It's like, it's like when you grow um, a marketplace web business, you want to balance customers on one side and the people providing the service for those customers and make sure that there's always liquidity and, that, and the value being made in the marketplace. Well, for a startup, it's all around traction, like the currency is traction. And in the beginning, you're measuring that slightly differently. There has to be traction. Traction might be we sold it to two people and they loved it and they, you know, they took the product and they said they liked it. Um, obviously, the, the goalposts have moved when you're six months down the track and then a year down the track and they keep moving. And, and it gets more and more expensive as well. I mean, certainly in Australia, you do hit a point where you've, you've got what we call product market fit that there is, um, you can drop a customer into a product and they'll know what to do and they'll come back again and they'll pay you the money and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's a point where you can sort of start to scale it. So Lawpath, our business is, is there now, for example, that's a year old. It's got to the point where it's generating good revenue now, which is scaling up nicely every single month. It's still got a whole bunch of manual things that it's trying to sort out. So we're not... We're not trying to raise $2 million or you know $10 million to go crazy and scale it up. We've, we've still got value creation to do in that company, but we've raised enough to give us the next year with more resources. So we've just kind of expanded out just a like little bit, just in. enough to, but, we, but there's enough resources to, to, to properly market the business. It happens a lot in Australia. You'll see a lot of companies, um, get a nice sort of hockey stick of initial traction. So they've shown value. They've, they've got problem solution fit. People like what they're doing. They can prove it. And then now they've got to get through the noise to the next tier. And it, 
each week that goes by, that gets harder and more expensive. So as an example, when we started our Spreets business that we sold to Yahoo, we, we, we grew that business with a very aggressive AdWords campaign, which at the time was possible. And then now the, now the group buying business has, has effectively uh, run a race to the bottom, you know, in terms of competing for customers um, and buying for the highest rates, the, the you know, ads for restaurants and for, you know, every, everything you might want to be selling. Um, AdWords are now really, really expensive, so that's harder to do but we have we, we must penetrate here in australia we've got to get out there so you need to find the money so that's where the risk is you know you've got to you've got to you've got to build enough value to ask somebody to give you enough money to actually burst out to the next level to ask somebody else to give you enough money or or you know perhaps it's just becoming um cash flow positive but probably in our world that's still not good enough that's enough to survive but people are investing in our companies and we're investing in our companies with, with two beliefs. You know, belief number one is we accept we might lose all our money here. That's the first one. And the second one is, but if we win, you know, we, this should be a, a high growth business. This should, this should give us 10 times our return to go, to go on the cliche. But, you know, we're not, we don't want to risk everything to build a break-even business. You know, that's not what we're in the game of doing so get well, that comes control. back to picking which opportunities you take yes that's as, right. as an entrepreneur yourself that's right that's right and you know you, that's that's hard that's hard i mean we have a um i think the hardest thing for an entrepreneur is to balance your own set of wants and um and sort of prejudices against you know what what the opportunities are so actually the supply chain is another good example and Bruce Herbert who heads supply chain for Coca-Cola at the end of at the end of the hackathon said you know what guys you guys in the high rise you need to pay more attention to high vis you know the high vis shirts because you know it's not sexy i know it's not twitter and i know it's not facebook and i know it's not instagram but there are problems to be solved and there's money to be made. And, you know, there are armies of workforces out there doing things which need tools to help them and you need to pay attention and understand what they are. And that's the thing. So as startups, we, you know, that read TechCrunch and, you know, we go, great, we're going to make a social network and we're going to do a, you know, you know recent, recently there's been a lot of interest in, Biz Stone's new business, which is called Jelly, which is an app for asking questions by our photos. And it's a gorgeous app. It's sort of beautifully put together, but I for one can't see its utility. But you can see a, you can see an interest in wow, I need to make I want to make an app like that. But but in Australia, my belief at least is that you can't build an app like that because no one's going to resource you for the years it's going to take you to get to any point where... So so Twitter is a good example. It discovered its utility and its revenue model after a considerable amount of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort. Um, it feels unlikely that a business like that could emerge out of Australia at the moment. Yeah, it would have to start here perhaps and then shift elsewhere. Yes. I think I, I saw one of your posts actually. You made a really 
uh, a really valid point, I think, and and you just touched on it then, which is this uh, theory that, or the idea that we're making all these startups and there's a sort of a, a hidden desire to make, you know, the next Twitter or the next Instagram or the next Facebook. But are these really solving useful problems for people? You know, how, what kind of utility are they delivering yeah. to the world at large? I think, it's, again, it's the balance. So, you know, one thing, we're, we're always talk, talking about, you know, needing that, that core utility, like solving a real problem for a real customer. And the criticism we always get around that, which is valid, there's a valid point in it. Well, what's, what's the problem that Angry Birds is solving? You know, um, or you know, what what was the problem that the amazing, world-changing, multi-billion-dollar Twitter was solving when it was formed? You know, and I think that that's absolutely valid. I mean, I would but you I would can love answer to. those questions. Well, I think so, and I think, but especially in in Australia, if you just if you actually look at the businesses that in fact succeed, you will see a litany of retail businesses. You will see a litany of Product businesses where, where they sell digital products, so Atlassian, 99designs, Canva now commonly. Um, so what, what you're seeing there, I think, is a, is a bunch of businesses which sell something to somebody for a price and you can validate that business very early on. You can say, will you buy, my, will you buy this thing I've made? And they'll say no and you've learned that it's not happening or they'll say yes and you go, fantastic, and I made a bit of money. Let's build on that. So there's a very simple business model to grow. In contrast, you know, building a, a media-style business for um, which will only work if you have sort of 10 million ad impressions every single month, you know, feels feels challenging to do. And there's been a lot of attempts to do that. Um, I think, um, you know, but, but there are ways of... Um, there are other business models around that which are kind of interesting and solving problems for people. So you see a lot of these businesses turning into events businesses and charging people for events and things like that. But I think finding we need the key. The key learning for me is we need to be able to validate the business model quickly in Australia. I think you know, having been to many many angel investor events. Um, uh, people do not get traction pitching something which doesn't already have um, people just coming in in their droves and using it and paying them money, and that's what we have to. That's just what we have to get to 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 be successful. It's quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Well, Phil, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Good chat. Well, there you have it, Phil Moore. Great guy. Uh, I really enjoyed having him on the show. It was a pretty wide-ranging interview, and we covered a lot of ground, and I think uh, there's definitely room for um, more exploration. So I'm going to hit him up in more than 12 months' time to try and get him back on the show and see where Polonizer is um, and how they've evolved even further. Definitely worth following up with him on things like mentorship. How do you find a mentor if you're an entrepreneur? And not only that, How do you find the right mentor, someone who can actually guide you in a way that's relevant and meaningful to your challenges? Um, That's something that I will I will have penciled down for a future future conversation with him, and hopefully I have my recording gear there so you can be privy to that as well. 
Now, if you're enjoying the show, why don't you swing by iTunes, search for Creative Agency and drop me a review. Um, those always help make sure that uh, other people can find the show. Also, you can swing by tickler.net forward slash radio forward slash CA for all the rest of the creative agency interviews. There's 15 now, including this one. So there's plenty, plenty of content for you to get your ears around. Well, that's about all we've got time for this week. So until next time, stay creative. <laughs>